Good morning. My name is uh, Joe Mueller. Um, I'm one of the, the pastors, one of the elders here. Um, and it is uh, my privilege to, to get to uh, preach from God's Word today. Um, today, it, we are celebrating sort of the first Sunday uh, of Advent. Um, and uh, we're going to be looking uh, at the book of 2 Corinthians, uh, chapter 4, uh, starting in verse 6. We'll be going through uh, 5, chapter 5. So if you turn uh, in your Bibles uh, to that. So Advent is a season of hope. It is a time where we remember the past faithfulness of our promise-keeping God and yearn for yet more of his precious promises to have their yes and their amen in Christ. In order to help us hone in on hope, we're going to be looking at hope in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. And we'll be reading through 5, 5. So if you are able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word. For God who said, let the light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life, all, life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what was written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and we also speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things which are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed... We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For this tent, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be more further clothed. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. You may have a seat. Let's pray. God, we acknowledge 
that Sunday morning is wartime. That Sunday morning is a time where you proclaim over us your truth. And where you fight for us. And where you put to death the things in our lives that you want to put to death. And you bring to life the things in us you want to bring to life. And so, Lord, we beg you, make war this morning. Fight for us, your people. Redeem us and make us your own. We love you so much, God. Amen. So I have a confession to make. If you ask me at any other time in my life to pick a passage to preach for an Advent message on hope, I would never have thought of 2 Corinthians chapter 4 through 5. But as I, I just couldn't get past this text for this sermon. I, I just couldn't. And so here we are looking at this passage that I think explains hope to us. Paul's argument will lay out three key characteristics of hope. And they are essential to what hope means. This will be an opportunity for us to examine our lives in the light of God's illuminating word and to ask ourselves if these elements are at work in operating in our lives. We have to ask this because hope is one of the core theological virtues. In 1 Corinthians 13, 13, Paul says, So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. So the three elements of hope that are in our text, and I want to draw out here, are these. The first is that hope beckons us to remember God and his past faithfulness. We'll see that in 4.6. The second is that hope comforts us in our present afflictions. We'll see that in 4.7 through 18. And then finally, hope elicits a yearning for the future fulfillment of God's precious promises. So Paul beckons the Corinthians to remember. That's our first point. Hope beckons us to remember God and his past faithfulness. You go ahead and put it up there. Remember, verse 6, right? The very opening. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Two things Paul is beckoning us to remember, right? For God who said, let the light shine out of darkness. This calls to mind the great creational utterance of God in the very first chapter of Genesis, in the third verse. God said, let there be light, and there was light. The fact that God is creator is important because it sets some very clear boundaries between God and us. He is alpha, the beginning. He is supreme over all of the created realm, visible and invisible, heaven and earth. He is the supreme sovereign over everything. He is transcendent. And extending so far beyond all understanding that even the fullest extent of the greatest human intellect can only grasp imperfectly the smallest fringe of his being. God is the God who shines the light into the darkness as creator. That is the first thing Paul wants us to remember. The second thing that Paul is reminding of 
uh, us and them in this verse is that God is their personal re-creator. God has shown, that for God who said, let the light shine out of darkness, has shown, he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God has shown his light, the light of Jesus Christ into our lives. And so if you have placed your faith and your trust and your firm confidence in this Jesus, who in the words of the catechism has freely granted, not only to others, but to me also, forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness and salvation, and that these are gifts of sheer grace granted solely by Christ's merit. If you are one of those people, then you are one of the people described by Paul. God has shown in your heart the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The Creator has opened your eyes to the glory of His Son, Jesus. Jesus, through the Spirit's work in the world, he has recreated you personally, literally, actually. Just remember 2 Corinthians 5.17, which we didn't read, but comes shortly after our passage. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You have been recreated by the light of Christ shining in you. So immediately we see Paul reminding of us who God is and what he has done on our behalf. He is, to, to put it in a silly way, he is the gospel Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? From Kindergarten Cop, who says, who is your God and what does he do? That's a, that's a joke. All right. um, but all joking aside, right? In this verse, Paul is doing something absolutely electric. Notice how light is such an integral part of this verse. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now hear, hear this. Hear this, church. Hear the words spoken 2,700 years ago through the prophet Isaiah. We're going to be picking up in chapter 9 and starting in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shown. Paul and Isaiah here are talking about the same exact thing. People in darkness have seen a great light. Light. Continuing in Isaiah, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So we have increased its joy, rejoicing, as with joy, glad, We'll just summarize all that with the word joy. So now we have light and we have joy in Isaiah. Continuing in Isaiah. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. This day of Midian is itself a reference to an event in the past. An event described in Judges chapter 7, verses 9 through 25, where a mere 300 men defeated an army of 120,000 in the army of Midian. Isaiah is here saying that God has delivered his people from their enemies. God has fought for them. So we have light, and we have joy, and we have deliverance. 
For every, again in Isaiah, for every boot of the trampling, tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now, we get to see how. We get to get into how this light and joy and deliverance come to be. How does this happen? How is this promise fulfilled? For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So we have joy, or sorry, we have light, we have joy, we have deliverance, we have it through the Son. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. Isaiah 9 represents a promise of future deliverance through the sending of a son and ultimately the son. This is obviously all about Jesus. Isaiah is saying that when Jesus comes, we will have light, we will have joy, we will have deliverance. And God will accomplish all this on our behalf. But, this, but from Isaiah's perspective, right, this will happen in the future. He's looking ahead, and he's prophesying this. From Paul's perspective, writing to the church in Corinth, this deliverance is past, and it is present. It is something that has happened and is continuing to happen. For Paul, Jesus has delivered and is delivering his church through Christ. Isaiah is looking forward. Jesus, or Paul is looking back. And where do they meet? Where do they meet each other? The answer is in Jesus. When the angel of the Lord announced the first advent, the first advent of our Lord and God, Jesus, to a group of poor shepherds as they watched their flock by night, he said in Luke 2.11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Deliverance, salvation, through the Son in the line of David. Luke here is echoing in this passage, Isaiah chapter 9. When Matthew writes about the very beginning of Jesus' ministry of perfect obedience and cross-bearing in chapter 4 of his gospel, he says, Now, when he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee, meaning Jesus, right? Jesus went to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, that's Isaiah 9, 1. Then uh, he continues, Matthew continues, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Light through the Son who brings the kingdom. Matthew here is quoting Isaiah 9. And so we have, Jesus, or we have Isaiah looking forward, Paul looking back, and where do they meet? They meet on Jesus. And I want to ask you, isn't the word of God beautiful? Isn't it so internally consistent? Isn't it so intricately interwoven, so delightfully organized, so electric? 
God's creation in Genesis 1 is tied to his promise of salvation in Isaiah 9, which is fulfilled in the first advent of Jesus our Lord in Luke 2 and Matthew 4. And finally, it is experienced by his church in every age as 2 Corinthians 4 describes so beautifully. So church, remember. Remember who God is. Remember his character, his essence, his being. God is creator. God is love. God is just. God is supreme over everything. Remember how through all times and ages, God has been faithful to his people. He is a promise-making and promise-keeping God, and the history of redemption heralds that faithfulness to us. 2,700 years ago, a man said something, and it means something to us today. And remember what God has done for you, personally. God has shown and is shining in your heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Remember, it is essential to hope. The next thing we will see is this, that hope comforts us in our present afflictions. That is our next and second thing. Paul continues in verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. The treasure here, the treasure, is the mystery and glory of 2 Corinthians 4, 6. This light that shines in the darkness is housed within our bodies. This jar of clay. If you know anything about jars of clay, they are not strong. Right? You can, you can knock it off a table and it shatters into a million pieces. They are, as Francesco would say in Cars 2, fragile. Right? They're fragile. They are also incredibly common. They are not special. They are a dime a dozen. And we have this glorious, wonderful, amazing treasure, God dwelling in us. But it is housed in this ridiculously fragile, unremarkable, common jar of clay. Why? Why does Paul bring this up now? And why does God do it this way? The answer is, in continuing verse 7 here, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So you see, it's to keep us humble. It's to help us understand our creaturely position in relationship to our creator. And our creature-to-creature relationship to each other. We are weak. We are fragile. We are nothing but jars of clay. He continues in verse 8. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Consider this language. Afflicted, perplexed persecuted, struck down, carrying in the body the death of Jesus, always being given over to death. Death is at work in us. These are the phrases Paul is using to describe what we might call life. This is living. Life 
is full of this stuff. And because life is full of this stuff, we need hope to comfort us. We need it. And a temptation here is to think that Paul is only talking about his own apostolic experience of suffering. Oh, that's Paul. Paul, Of course Paul suffered. Paul's Paul. And to be fair, Paul is talking about that here. But he isn't only talking about it. He isn't only talking about his own suffering because all Christians carry in the body the death of Jesus. Every single one of us. Look at Luke 9, 23. And he said to all, he said to all, all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Taking up your cross is an act of dying every day. Look at Luke 17.33. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. That sounds hard. That sounds unpleasant, but that is life. Christian, your dying is living, but unbeliever, your living is dying. The key difference between the two here is faith. Faith. Now, there is some good stuff here in this, in this, uh, in this section that I just read. It's good. Listen to the language again. Not crushed. Not despairing. Not destroyed. Life manifested in our bodies, our mortal flesh. This is all that dying is living stuff we just covered. But how can this be? How can this be true? It it seems clear that's true, but how is it true? What does it in us? Faith. Verse 13 in our our chapter here, uh, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith, that has, uh, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. Here Paul is grounding all of this. This dying is living in faith. And he's quoting Psalm 116.10, which is a great uh, psalm uh, of hope and faith in the midst of suffering. Faith is critical. And never more so than inside a context of life. Faith is necessary because we have to be looking to something we can't see yet. Verse 14. Knowing that he who raised the Lord, again a past event, will raise us also, a future event, with Jesus and brings us with you into his present future event. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away what we can see with our eyes. Our inner self is being renewed day by day, something that is unseen, but yet eternal. For this light momentary affliction, which we can see, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison which we cannot see just yet. For this light, I just read that, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So hope brings us comfort in our present affliction because it fixes our gaze on what is real. 
real things, eternal things. This, this world, it's transient. It is like a puff of smoke. It will wear out like clothes. That's what Isaiah 51.6 tells us. This world is like withering grass, not glass, grass, whose flowers fade away into nothing. Like weeds, this world is like a weed that is here and gone. That's Isaiah 46 through 8. But there is something more real and more true and more beautiful than this world. And faith opens our eyes to see that. Faith opens our heart. Faith says to us, as Ephesians 5.14 says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So do you have this faith? Is this what you believe? Do you see the things that are unseen? Hope comforts us in our afflictions because hope says, I know it's hard. Don't lose heart. You are not destroyed. Jesus sits on his throne. Glory is coming. Christ is and Christ will shine on you. That's what faith says. So let me ask, does your hope comfort you like this? And I don't really mean does your faith help you see, uh, keep a positive outlook on life and always be willing to look on the bright side of things because that's not what I mean. What I mean is that when you are at the end of yourself, Life is pressing on you, and you are feeling completely obliterated because you're just so lonely, or because you're a failure as a parent, or because you're hated and scorned and ostracized because of Christ, or because you can't control your world, and other people are making a mess of everything. Is it because tragedy has completely broken your will? And you are there. Does your hope make you say no? I'm not struck down. I am not destroyed. There is more to this story. God has something more for me in his presence. This death that I'm dying is so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in my mortal flesh. God is still with me. So who can be against me? I believe, Lord. Help my unbelief. Does your hope comfort you in your present afflictions? And if it doesn't, It might be because you haven't yet learned to yearn. And here we have our third and final piece of hope's essence in 2 Corinthians 4 and 5. Hope elicits a yearning for God's precious promises. Paul continues in 5 verse 1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed... We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Paul is now switching his body metaphor. He's switching it. Metaphor switch. Don't do it in the midst of a a discussion you're having with somebody because it's called mixing metaphors, but it's okay uh, because he's doing this in an inspired way. Um, So Paul is switching his body metaphors a bit from a jar of clay to a tent. A tent. This tent should make you think of the days when the fathers, the fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they lived in tents in the midst of a land of promise. 
It should remind you of the time after the exodus in the wilderness where Israel wandered on their way to that same promised land in a tent, and in tents. This tent language should make you think sojourner, wanderer. Hebrews 13, 14. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Christians are sojourners. Where we are is not our home. So Paul continues in 5.2, For in this tent, this tent of our sojournings, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we, be not, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be more fully clothed. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up, or obliterated, or destroyed, or consumed, or end forever by life. He who has prepared for us this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. For in this tent, consider this language again. For in this tent we groan longing. For while in this tent, for while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. This is the language Paul is using to describe the experience of hope. Hope is eliciting a yearning here. But what is the precious promise of God that it is yearning for? What is hope desiring? What precious promise that's in the future does it desire to see fulfilled, to have its yes and its amen in Christ? Hope longs to put on the heavenly dwelling. Hope desires to be further clothed. Hope is burdened for what is mortal to be swallowed up by life. These are just all different ways Paul is describing the same reality. The promised land of heaven. So let's talk about heaven for a second. And to talk about heaven, I'm going to explore what I view to be a God-ordained analogy. Because it is an analogy for heaven that is found in the Holy Scriptures. It's going to tell us what heaven is like. It's just a picture of what heaven is like. And for this analogy, we need to remember a time in Jesus' ministry when some children were trying to get to see Jesus. But his disciples were preventing it. And look how Jesus responds in Mark 10, verse 14 and 16. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. And he said, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God, and that's heaven. The kingdom of God is heaven. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. So Jesus, to show to all people in all generations what the kingdom of God will be like, picks up a child. And he hugs them. Church, Jesus picks up a child and he hugs him. I pray that you understand what I'm saying. He picks 
up a child and he hugs him. Heaven is the embrace, the loving embrace of a parent picking up their child and holding it close. And you don't have to be a parent to feel this. I felt this before I was a parent. And you don't have to be a parent to feel this. But you know what it's like as an aunt or an uncle or a brother or a sister to find a child who just needs to be held and to pick them up and to hold them. We are that child. Jesus is the one who picks us up and he is the one who holds us. And that is what heaven will be. That is what the realization of heaven is. It is a hug from on high. It is a swallowing up of that which is mortal and putting on life. The second advent of our Lord will bring this to be. The second advent of our Lord. Titus 2 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Revelation twenty two twenty, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. Let us pray. God, would you come soon? Would you come? We long for you to be here with us. We long to know you as we ought to know. We long to be people who obey you and who do your will always because we just love you so. We desire you so. We long to be clothed more fully than we are today. We long to be more like you, Jesus. And we know that when you come, we will. And so we long. We long for it to be true. We long for it to be so. We long to see you come and for the sky to split. We long to see heaven and earth flee away, but there will be no place for them to flee. We long for for the world to be full of darkness and for you to flip on the switch and for all darkness to scatter before you. We long to fill our breath and our lungs with the presence of your spirit in heaven. We long to breathe air that is saturated with you. We long to be in fellowship and unity with each other so that our praise can be without end. And your name can be hallowed and praised and lifted in our hearts in a way that it is not today because of these jars of clay that we house this treasure in. We long to be with you, Lord. So, Lord, come. Come soon. Amen.